The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today for a deep dive into the energy markets and a look at companies reporting fourth quarter earnings. My guests are Barron's Deputy Editor, Ben Levison, and Denton Sinquegrana, Chief Oil Analyst at Opus, the Oil Price Information Service. Like Barron's, it's a unit of Dow Jones. Welcome, Denton and Ben, and thank you for joining me on Barron's Live today. Thanks, Lauren. Hey, Lauren. Thank you. A pleasure. So we have a lot to cover on today's call. So I want to just dive right in. Denton, the first question is going to you. I'm going to start with an obvious question that seems to have no obvious answer. So here goes. Why have oil prices remained relatively flat? In fact, they barely moved in the face of two wars in major oil producing regions in the past two years and a post-pandemic economic recovery in many parts of the world. Oil seems to be the dog that hasn't barked, and maybe you can tell us why. Yeah, no, there's a couple different factors. I think a lot of the tailwinds for demand in that post-COVID recovery have have come through. They've run their course, so those are those are you know they they're gone now. Uh, as far as the two wars are concerned, let's go back to 2022 when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. The overwhelming thought was, oh no, we're going to lose about nine million barrels a day of of oil production. Now, granted, the U.S. and the West issued sanctions on Russia, but still Russian oil was still making it out to the market. And you can make an argument that some of that oil somehow appeared on U.S. shores when uh, refineries in India, for example, were taking in some of that Russian oil, refining it and shipping gasoline components, for example, to the New York Harbor. So really, the a lot of those fears were just never really you know, come to pass. Uh, you obviously had the spike in prices up to over $120 a barrel, but by the end of 2022, prices calmed down. Fast forward to October 2023, and you have the, the Hamas attack on Israel, and the Middle East is, is a tinderbox. There's no question about that. Geopolitical tensions are high, but as it currently stands, you haven't seen any real impact on oil production Supplies remain the same. Uh, OPEC Plus has put into place their, their cuts for the first quarter of 2024. And we'll get some data on that in the in the coming weeks and months about how they're performing. But for the most part, and also, oh, on the side, you have the United States producing oil at an all-time high. So okay. I think it's all right. an important factor. factor. Yeah, yeah, very important factor. I just threw it in there as a as kind of a side note, like, oh yeah, there's this going on too. So uh, you have a you have a really uh, stable supply situation right now, and I think that's one of the big reasons why you haven't seen prices escalate like you would think they normally would under the set of circumstances we're seeing right now. So we've talked about the supply situation. What about the demand outlook? Yeah, and you know one of the things that have, have has been coming into play is. Uh, some of the demand growth and, and demand tends to grow pretty much every year. But even OPEC 
the International Energy Agency, the Energy Information Agency here in the U.S., are all, yes, they see growth, but they're kind of scaling back on the amount of growth. You know, I think OPEC and uh, IEA have uh, growth of in the 1.2 million barrels a day area. That would still represent record record demand, but it's pulling back a little bit from what they had originally anticipated last month. And why do you think that's so? I think there's some concerns about about the global economy and, and the growth of the global economy. We've seen what's happening in, in China with their with their economy. The Chinese stock market, as we all know, is 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 getting beat up pretty good right now. So I, I think there's some concerns about economic growth globally. So this leads me to ask: Do you have an oil price forecast for 2024? Yeah, I think you know. Again, it's you're going to need some really extenuating circumstances to get back to triple digits. I do think there's a tendency, uh, and these markets are very seasonal. That's one thing to to keep in mind. We probably had a low in in WTI futures in that uh, you know sixty. I think it was in the sixty seven dollar per barrel area. Brent in the seventy two dollar per barrel area back in mid December. Typically, you get about a forty percent bounce. Off those into the into the late second quarter, uh, and the and the start of the summer driving season here in the United States, that would that would push prices up to about ninety dollars a barrel, a little bit more than ninety for for Brent, and the mid to upper eighties for WTI. I think that's probably where we peak out for for both those contracts, and then again on the downside, probably in the mid sixties. So again, pretty wide range, twenty dollars or so on on both contracts. But uh, for the most part, unless something happens that we just don't see right now, whether they're uh, on both sides, whether there's a further escalation of the hostilities in the Middle East or uh, that would obviously push prices higher. Or if there's a a real significant economic slowdown that could bring the the bottom end of that range uh, even lower. So, again, without anything, you know, extenuating circumstances that we don't see right now. You're looking probably about 65 to 85 for, for WTI and, and probably about $6 more for Brent. What about natural gas prices? Yeah, well, one of the things that we've discovered here in the United States is we have a lot of natural gas. And you're seeing that kind of play out right now in the natural gas futures markets where you, know, you had prices spike based on the cold weather forecasts here over the last couple of weeks. And now with, uh, you know, the middle of this week, we're supposed to be above uh, normal in most of the country. And natural gas prices are are responding in kind to that, uh, really kind of falling off since late last week. Um, suffice to say, there's plenty of natural gas out there, at least in the United States. Globally, is a little bit more of a challenge. Uh, and that's where liquefied natural gas could, could step in in a little bit. Do you think, um, you know, analysts are very optimistic that uh, the LNG is going to boost, you know, once that really the, get the export capacity going, that's going to boost prices in 2025 and beyond. Is that too optimistic or do you think it's justified? No, I think it is justified. But the thing with liquefied natural gas, you know, building the infrastructure for it, it's it's a lot like, uh, you know, it, it's the opposite of the movie Field of Dreams. If you build it, they will come. They have to come first before you build it. Uh, you, you need these long-term contracts in place before it makes economic sense to, to build these facilities. That being said, facilities are being built. Facilities are are running uh, at a pretty high rate at, at capacity, essentially. So I think it is supportive of, of prices here in the in the over the next couple of years. 
you know, there might be some short-term uh, rough patches here with with high supplies here in the United States and, and in other parts of the world, and a you know winter that right now is looking you know pretty chilly out there. But I think things are expected to trend more or less above normal for the rest of the winter. And what's the energy outlook in Europe? There was some talk about how high prices have been at the Barons Roundtable. Yeah, so Europe's a, a little bit of a, a different animal here than the United States. Obviously, a big push for renewables, wind and solar on the electricity side, the getting rid of fossil fuels in general. But you know, you look at a, a lot of bank analysts, etc., and they use Norway as an example. And quite frankly, it's 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 a perfect example how the electrified electric vehicles uh, make up a huge majority of the cars on the road, but their oil use has not really just shifted all that much. It's still pretty flat over the last, you know, decade or so. So I still believe that, you know, fossil fuels are going to be part of the, part of the mix for the, for, for the foreseeable future, even with, you know, the all hands on deck approach, which is probably necessary for look every, every dozen or so years, there's a billion people added to the planet. We're going to need energy, whether it comes from fossil fuels or renewables, it's, it's going to be needed. A fair point, for sure. So I want to talk about other parts of the energy market besides production. I want to talk a little bit about refining and transportation. Refining capacity has been growing globally. What is the significance of that? And what does it mean for the U.S.? Yeah, no, absolutely. And and there's two refineries that have been getting a lot of attention lately. The Dangote refinery in Nigeria, 650,000 barrels a day. That is not an insignificant refinery. That is a big, big refinery. Uh, they've been receiving crude oil. They're starting to run. Uh, but again, when these refineries first start, it takes a little while to get on-spec fuels that could be kind of delivered into the markets, whether it's the domestic market or exported internationally before you can meet specifications. So I think Dangote may be a little bit ahead of schedule, but I really don't think it, it's a game changer for the Atlantic basis, Basin really until maybe the end of this year, beginning of next. The other is the Das Bocas refinery in Mexico. Uh, that's another one where, you know, I think they've had about a dozen ribbon cuttings at that refinery, but again, <laughs> It's one of those things where it takes some time. So uh, maybe some reporters have jumped the gun on these. But again, any sort of uh, contribution to, to global supply as far as refined products are concerned is is probably not until the end of this year and maybe even early next year. Uh, what that means for the United States is, look, the, the United States is kind of the, for lack of a better term, when it comes to refined products, the grocery store for the rest of the world. We export a lot of fuel, whether it's diesel, whether it's gasoline, whether it's uh, NGLs like propane uh, and, and crude oil. We, we export quite a bit of crude oil nowadays. Um, that's going to continue. But I would say there's a few kind of hot spots within the country, whereas if, if you have a refinery issue like a fire, there's going to be some companies that have to make a real major decision here. Do we fix this refinery? Do we rebuild the units? Or do we just kind of kind of throw in the towel because, you know, the writing is on the wall. I mean, it's going to take a long time, but gasoline demand is in, is in a flattening to secular decline of the the electric vehicle is on its way. It's not quite there yet, but still, in 15 starts. 
yeah, each year it's 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 starting to pick up a little bit more critical mass. Um, so again, in certain parts of the country, I'm thinking California, potentially, you know, here on the East Coast where there are still several refineries, if there's you know kind of a significant incident, the company that you know owns that 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 piece of equipment, they they're gonna have some decisions to make on whether to rebuild, fix it, or just throw in the towel on it. So one more question on refining before before I turn to Ben and talk about oil stocks. I wanted you to address an issue in California that could possibly impact the earnings of a number of big energy companies. The California Energy Commission has been tasked by the governor to come up with a so-called maximum refining margin. It sounds to me like the commission wants to turn refiners into regulated utilities, but you're the expert, not me. So Tell me what the commission is doing and what are the stakes for companies like Chevron and Valero and Marathon? Yeah, no, you're, and I think that's that's kind of a, a good way to describe it and turning them into a, a regulated utility. Um, what the, like you said, there's a, a maximum margin. We don't know what that number is. I think the California Energy Commission is still gathering data, uh, gathering information from the industry to figure out what is that maximum margin. Uh, that they could they could charge essentially for for gasoline and diesel. Um, if you read closely in some of the the filings from some of these companies, like you mentioned, Chevron, Valero, uh, Marathon, Phillips sixty six, PBF, those are kind of the the big refiners in California. Some of them have said, "Hey, look, this law if it comes in, if we once we get these numbers, it could have a real impact on our earnings. And if it's that bad, we may." You know, I'm paraphrasing here and reading between the lines, but we may have to take our ball and go home. Understandable. Is this even legal? Uh, I'm not an attorney, but again, the, <laughs> the, the governor has uh, has signed the law. The California Energy Commission is is you know taking the steps necessary to to try and come up with that number, um, and we're just all kind of kind of waiting on what that number actually is. It's an interesting situation. All right, one more question. I lied. I've got one more energy question because everybody wants to know how will all of this affect me when I get to the pump. So, what's your forecast for gasoline? Yeah. So again, kind of like the the oil, you know, out, outlook. I think without anything, you know, of let's say a, a major hurricane uh, in the third quarter that knocks out, you know, twenty five percent of the U.S. refining capacity on the Gulf Coast. Uh, I think we're looking at what is probably a little bit lower year as far as gasoline retail gasoline prices here in the U.S. are concerned. Last year, the average was about $3.52. I think this year we're going to be probably about 5 to maybe even $0.15 cents cheaper. I think supplies are pretty comfortable. And again, with more electric vehicles uh, coming onto the roads, but even with electric vehicles coming onto the roads, the more significant impact to gasoline demand and gasoline consumption is the cars we drive today are much more fuel efficient than what they were, you know, 10 and 15 years ago. So as the vehicle fleet turns over, you're getting more and more efficient vehicles out there. And again, I, I think all of us here on this call, we're working from home today. So we're not commuting. Uh, the working from home not thing. Me. Oh, okay. Sorry, Lauren. <laughs> um, but I took the train. Working from home is still having an impact on, on commuting. It's not as big as it was, say, in 2020, obviously, in 2021. But it still plays a role in the, in the amount of fuel consumed uh, Monday through Friday. 
that's a good point. I think Jay Powell will be happy to see lower gasoline prices, and so will I. And so will so, the president. And so will the president, for sure. All right, now I want to turn to Ben at Barron's and at Barron's Live. We like to talk about what the big picture outlook means for stocks. In this case, it's energy stocks. Ben is our markets editor and follows trading in the sector. So, Ben, I'd like to get your take on this discussion and some of the stocks that are likely to benefit from current and prospective circumstances. Sure. Um, well, I, I think it. Uh, we need to start with the fact that energy stocks have been pretty disappointing. Um, right now, we're trading mm -hmm. uh, at the uh, for the uh, energy select sector spider, which is an ETF uh, XLE that uh, tracks uh, energy stocks. You know, it's had its lowest level since uh, July of last year. Um, and uh, I think this has to do with a couple of things. One is uh, oil prices. Um, again, it's been kind of confounding, as Anton was laying out, just uh, the reasons why, but that oil has not been able to move higher, um, despite uh, kind of the turmoil that uh, has been going on. Um, and uh, I, I think for a lot of the uh, folks that are following uh, oil stocks, um, I think UBS is a good example. They're saying that you need oil above $80 to really get the sector moving again. Um, and I think the other thing that's happening is that you do have this uh, M&A happening, and it, it, that does throw a little bit of a wrench into this argument that oil companies have been making, that they've kind of turned, uh, you know, turn, turned the page on their capital allocation, that they're really focused on returning cash to investors, not making uh, bad investments, and, and going ahead and doing some of these deals, I think, likely uh, rekindles some of these uh, fears, some of the nightmares of the past where, you know, oil companies have paid premium prices for others at the top of the, uh, the cycle, um, only to see that money kind of uh, burn up um, when the, the oil stocks all started to fall again. And so I think that's hanging over uh, the, the sector a bit. Um, one of the things, though, that, uh, again, I'm going back to UBS for this, is that they were pointing out is that as long as you have oil that's above seventy dollars, that's pretty good for these companies. Um, so the oil explorers should be able to, you know, generate some pretty good cash flow and keep uh, paying some nice dividends and whatnot. Um, and uh, over time, that will be attractive. And I think the other thing to look at with um, the the oil sector is that if you take a step back and say look at a five year chart on XLE, what you really see is that. It uh, looks like oil has been going down a lot. It actually has been trading sideways for the last couple of years. Um, it had this massive rally um, out of that, you know, the, when it hit negative prices in oil back in uh, 2020. It's really had a massive rally in oil stocks generally. Um, and then it's been trading sideways is kind of, I think, some of the excesses that got in there um, have to, you know, get to get out of it. And people are still trying to figure out, OK, what's the next move? Um, and so uh, I think you know, for the entire sector, it's going to take a little while to keep resolving this. Uh, in terms of individual stocks, uh, Barron's has picked two in recent uh, um, recent months. Um, uh, Chevron was a, a one of Andrew Barry's top 10 stocks. We also did an individual pick on it. Um, and then the other one that we actually picked uh, just, uh, I think it was this past week, was uh, BP, uh, which Andrew is very excited about. Um, he, uh, you know, sees it really lagging uh, the other oil majors, um, but he sees that with the company pivoting back to uh, oil exploration and production again, that, uh, that that could be a catalyst for it to close some of that gap. Um, do you want me to keep talking, Lauren? Because I got more. 
<laughs> All right, give us a few more names and then we'll go on to earnings. I'll give you a few more names. What I always like to see is how different analysts are trying to think about the sector right now. Uh, there's uh, one firm called Gertis that uh, he had a pretty interesting way of doing it. He's taking, uh, he took his stocks based on their net present value. He gave that a three times weighting. He looked at their internal rate of return over a full cycle. That gave a two times weighting. And then he put a, a subtracted uh, one-time weight for having leverage. And he came up with uh, some some names that we've heard of, including ExxonMobil, EQT, APA. APA was a pick for Barron's last year, uh, Entero, Cotero, and uh, Comstock. SunTrust was another firm. They're actually looking to take a kind of quality bent here. Um, they want companies that have low cost operations, stable production, and are leading with shareholder returns. And so within their coverage, there's Conoco, there's Devon Energy, and there's Diamondback Energy among the large caps. So that's just just a few names to think about right here. It was interesting. We had more talk about energy stocks at the round table than I can remember. And we had Scott Black picking Diamondback and uh, David Giroux from Kiro Price picked Canadian oil, uh, Canadian natural resources, the oil sands company. So energy is not a lost cause on Wall Street, as you've, as you've rightly noted. Now let's take a look at some companies reporting earnings this week, Ben. We've got Netflix, we've got Tesla, we've got Intel, and a couple of others that are closely watched. I thought we would start with Netflix, which reports, when does Netflix report? Tomorrow. Tomorrow, so yes. Stock's done well over the past 12 months. What is on tap when the company reports? Yeah, I mean, the stock has done well. I think, uh, you know, there was a point where, uh, you know, when Disney was uh, launching Disney Plus and everybody else was getting to the streaming game that, uh um, people were really worried about uh, Netflix and and what the future uh, future held for it. And now I think uh, that's no longer the case. It's sort of recognized that Netflix is the one that's won, and everybody else is still trying to catch up, trying to figure it out. Um, Netflix has done some interesting things, including, and I think this is one of the things that we watched greatly, is they've switched over to uh, um, having an advertising supported plan. And so people are going to be looking to see the continued impact of that on um, on revenue. Um, is it going to uh, be added to revenue? Are they going to lose subscribers because of it? Does it add subscribers? Um, the uh, um, I was looking at Evercore. They see um, something along the lines of 8.8 .8 million new subscribers, maybe a, a touch below where the, the street is looking, but it's pretty strong there. Um, and they also want to see that the operating margin is doing better. Um, and so that, that's going to be an interesting one to watch. It has done very well in the past year, but it's also still well below its all-time highs. You look at the one-year chart on the stock, and it looks like it's been kind of straight up. But you look at the uh, three-year chart, and you see this huge dip from 2022. And I think the stock's made up about two-thirds of that. So there's actually some room to the upside if it uh, can produce a pretty solid number here um, um, tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Sounds interesting for Netflix. What about Tesla? We've, we've been talking about oil this morning, but of course, Tesla's the inverse to oil. Bring us up to date on what's been ailing the company in recent months and what to expect from earnings. No, I mean, Tesla, I think the biggest thing about it is that it really has um, decided to trade, uh, you know, profits for um, for market share, for sales. Um, and so what you're seeing is that uh, they are going to have earnings of 73 cents a share, which is going to be down from $1.19 uh, the year before. And I don't think anyone 
really likes that. Um, sales are still going up. They're going to have revenue of uh, 25.6 uh, billion or so, and that'll be up from 24.3 billion. Um, but it's that profit that is, um, I think, concerning people that, uh, you know, they went from having the best margins uh, in, in, in autos to one that's a lot more middling. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see what happens there. But to, everyone's going to really be curious about the outlook. Um, it's, sure. uh, it, you know, there there's, I think the estimates are all over the place. The street has it at something like 370 for the year. But Adam Jonas, who's a bull on the stock, sees it much lower. Um, it looks like around $1.98 um, in a note that was released today. Um, this is all, of course, getting, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm channeling Al Root, who uh, covers Tesla for us. Um, and so, uh, you know, the, the worry here is that, uh, the, that the street is just too high for 2024. They're going to have to bring down the estimates, but the stock may be reflecting a lot of that because it's already down um, 16% uh, to start the year. But I think the other thing that people are worried about is um, just the headlines have been bad for Tesla recently. Um, the cold weather, um, you know, you, you heard about Tesla's not being able to start in, in the real extreme cold in Chicago and things like that. Um, you know, Barron's, uh, we had an article that ran over the weekend about, uh, um, you know, one of our editors who rented a Tesla and really did not have a good experience with it uh, for this road trip he took. Um, and, and, I, and I think that's partially what, uh, that's, that's an overhang now. And it's not that there's anything I, I think wrong with the cars. I know Al would say that cars are perfectly fine. It's just that when you have new technology, you have to... The, the old habits that you have with the internal combustion engine vehicles, you just can't take those habits and translate them over to electric vehicles. It doesn't, they don't work the same way. So I know Al, when he takes his road trips with the Tesla, he never has any complaints because he just knows what he's doing with, uh, you know, how to program his phone to tell him where the next charging station is, all that kind of stuff that really makes it easy um, or at least easier. Um, so I think that there's just a lot of this people just trying to still wrap their heads around EVs. And this is all hanging over Tesla right now. It's a learning curve. It really driver. is. So I understand that. And I should I should reverse my remarks. Tesla is not the inverse of energy, as Denton rightly pointed out. Norway has not seen much drop in energy use, even though electric cars are dominating on the roads. So with that said, let's talk for a few minutes or, or at least a minute about Intel, and then we'll get to some listening questions. Sure. A bigger, better company. Todd Alston recommended it at the roundtable. We write about it a lot. What are you hearing? The company reports on Thursday. I think the big concern with Intel right now is just how much it's gone up recently. Um, it's up 38% over the past uh, three months. It's up 65% over the past 12 months. Um, and th there's concern is that the, the, the stock has gotten ahead of the numbers. Um, they don't have the AI chips quite yet. Uh, there's still some worries about PC chips slowing and whatnot. And perhaps the guidance will be weaker than the market is expecting. Um, and so, I mean, I think that's got to be the big worry is like, you know, everyone's expecting this turnaround from Intel, but it's not going to happen overnight. And so has the stock just run too much, given where it is right now? Does it need a pullback to kind of reset things before it could start going again? Given those gains, I'm guessing that that's probably the case. But hey, I'm usually wrong when I guess like this. Um, but I would say that there is uh, the high expectations heading into this print that it may be unable to meet. Okay, fair enough. We'll be watching that. Now let's get to some listener questions. We've got a lot of them coming in today. Thank you to our audience. Again, we've had quite a few questions about nuclear energy. Do you have any opinions about that? Do you follow it at all? 
Um, in a past life, I actually started my energy journey covering electricity markets. And uh, as far as nuclear is concerned, you know, the, the opinion I formed on it, and again, Opus doesn't necessarily follow electricity in that regard, but it's 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 clean. It's it's good baseload. Uh, it's highly regulated by the Nuclear Energy uh, Commission, Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the NRC. So uh, again, I think a lot of the fears about uh, nuclear are, are based on a, a couple of incidents. And don't get me wrong, I'm not minimizing those incidents. They were pretty significant incidents like Chernobyl, et cetera. But, you know, I, I think nuclear is starting to, to get open more eyes as a potential uh, a solution and a gateway to more to more renewables out there as well. Okay, I hope that answers some of the questions. But interesting. We've got a questions from Patrick and from Michael Kay involving the Houthi campaign in the Red Sea. The Houthis have been attacking American and other ships. What could be the impact on oil prices if this heats up? How do you how do you see things playing out? Well, let's talk about what's going on right now. Is obviously it hasn't had any impact on supplies. The only impact it really has, it's taken more time to deliver oil. And it's made it more expensive in shipping rates, et cetera. I think with the Iranians, you know, basically supporting the Houthis, I think they're willing to agitate, but not necessarily escalate. Um, so they're going to continue to probably be a thorn in the side unless this thing really spreads further. And, you know, we start to see other other countries get involved and more directly involved. I think that's that's when you, you kind of keep an eye on oil prices and what the impact is on supplies. Um, that, I think that's what's going on. We're wait, we've been waiting for what is it three three months now for basically the other shoe to drop, and and this has kind of been the shoe that's dropped so far. If it goes beyond this and more countries get involved, uh, then then you need to worry and, and take a look at what prices are going to do. I mean, you take a look at it, for example, a couple weeks ago, Libya had to shut in three hundred thousand barrels a day of of output. Uh, due to uh, protests near one of the larger fields, uh, it, it created maybe a blip in, in oil prices, but that field has re restarted and everything, and and prices kind of cooled off. But you know, you have these these little sh kind of short term uh, disruptions that kind of boost prices for a little bit of time, and then they kind of normalize. But until we see a wider spread of 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 the hostilities uh, that gets more countries involved directly, then I think we. You know, it, it's just really more background noise. Got it. And that that seems to be what political analysts are saying as well. No no way to know, but we'll right. keep watching. All exactly. right. We have a question from Gregory. This is a big question. Many people are asking, what is the realistic transition date from oil to electric vehicles and alternatives? Gregory notes that most of the investment banking research analysts at top Wall Street firms have pegged 2048 as the natural market transition. Do you have a year in mind? Do you have thoughts about this transition? I, I do think 2048 makes a lot more sense than, than 2030. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, in the grand scheme of things, 2030 is not that far away. Uh, these no. days seem to be going a lot by a lot faster as I get older. But anyway, um, no, <laughs> you know, one thing to keep in mind is that, what, there's 200 million registered vehicles in the United States you know, it, it's not like a cell phone where you get a new a new car every two to three years. I mean, if you lease one, sure. But 
the vehicle fleet turns over very, very slowly. It takes about, you know, 10, 12 years to, to turn over the fleet. And the fact that, you know, hey, you don't have people maybe commuting as much as they once did, you're holding on to your car a little bit longer. Uh, not only are there 200 million U.S. registered vehicles, it's about 2 billion on the planet. So again, that rotation, you know, out of older cars into new, newer cars, whether that's an electric car or or a more fuel efficient, you know, internal combustion engine, it takes a long time. So I think a 2048 timeline is certainly much more realistic uh, than, than 2030, despite what some kind of global leaders might lead you to believe. All right, 2030 does seem around the corner. <laughs> and given, given the troubles that Tesla's having and some other EV manufacturers, it, it does not seem like a transition year. Yeah. So question I'm going to throw to Ben from Glenn. What do you think of ExxonMobil? Um, you know, I think it's a, a fairly, you know, solid company. It's... Um, it's doing what it's it's always done. Um, you know, it's of all the majors, it's basically the one sticking to its guns the most. You know, it is thinking about the transition, but it's still really out there drilling and exploring and producing. Um, and it's, uh, you know, the, the capital plan is pretty good. I think the, um, you know, again, the fear is still that, that with that M&A um, going on, that that's uh, going to be a problem. But I think that the stock can, you know, work through that. Um, and, you know, I know from talking to Andrew that, uh, you know, he picked Chevron, um, for the top 10, but I think that he very easily could have, uh, chosen Exxon instead. Um, you know, they're both very well-run companies. And if you're looking at an oil stock, uh, you know, Exxon is still up there as one of the top to choose from. And it yields almost 4%. That it does. So Can I add something different. about about Exxon? The, yes, know, please. Ben's comments. You know, one of the things, that, and this may be you know considered a little bit of a niche within a niche, but they're one of the largest chemical producers in the world, if not the largest. So, you know, chemicals are obviously going to be a, a big part, and plastics obviously are going to be a big part of the the transition going forward as well. And and obviously Exxon is is well positioned in, in that play as well. Thanks for adding that. We yeah, have another question. Go ahead, Ben. I was just say, yeah. I mean, it's 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 just amazing how big Exxon is and all yeah. the different pies that it it has its fingers in. True. We forget, true. We forget about all of that. Yeah. <laughs> so we have a question from Bill about what is your opinion on investing in pipeline companies. Ben, do you want to take that and then we'll get Denton's opinion? Well, I, I can give, uh, you know, uh, Andrew's opinion. You know, he's picked MLPs the past couple of years to be the top income uh, investment for uh, for investors. This year, I think it was one of his top three. Um, Andrew loves them. He thinks that they're just in, they're, they're in a great spot right now. We aren't building more pipelines. There's a lot of oil being produced. Uh, they're very necessary. This isn't the, the overhyped sector of, you know, the, uh, 2014, 15, 16, but there's, you know, there's something, something very real here. And he thinks that they're a great play for income investors. Then any thoughts or shall we leave it with the. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with, with, with what, with what Ben just said, there, you know, mm -hmm. no new pipelines are really being built. Um, you got to get not just the oil, but the refined products from point A to point B in uh, in, in my part of the world and here in New Jersey. You know, we rely not only just on refining and, and imports, but uh, gasoline and diesel that's produced on the Gulf Coast and shipped on the Colonial Pipeline that runs from Houston all the way to Linden, New Jersey. So uh, pipeline is obviously very important. Uh, storage as well. Uh, there was a big there was a big. Uh, 
acquisition where Sunoco uh, purchased the the storage assets from from Newstar today, earlier today or announced it today. Um, you know, again, these are these are companies that you know you got to pay to store the store the the barrels. So uh, I think pipelines and and that kind of midstream uh, infrastructure plays is has become uh, a little bit more important, especially as uh, there's been some consolidation in that in, this, in, the, in that segment of the business. Is that what I see driving down the New Jersey Turnpike? All that oil storage. Yep, that's exactly it. That's the end of the line there. <laughs> Got it. So here's a, here's a related question from Michael J. He wants to know about trends in shipping liquid, liquid natural gas from the U.S. to the Middle East. Yeah, again, it's it's one of those things, you know, with, with LNG terminals, you know, they're very expensive to build and you need these long-term contracts in play, uh, these, these sort of take or pay type contracts where you're forced to, to, to take the, the LNG or you're going to pay the price anyway, so you might as well just take it. Um, so I think that's going to continue to play a role. Um, obviously, the Middle East has has plenty of their their own natural gas, but they're going to sometimes need to depend on the U.S. and, and others uh, for some extra incremental barrels. So, uh, again, I think I think that's going to be that's going to continue. We had a question from James: What do you make of Occidental Petroleum's carbon capture products projects? Um, you know, I think one of the things is you know carbon capture. I don't know if it's necessarily a silver bullet, but again, it's one of if we want to reduce you know carbon emissions, it's one of the one of the tools in the tool belt, so to speak. So again, it's an expensive uh, project right now, but again, as it becomes more and more, uh, you know, kind of comes more and more into play, uh, I think the price of it goes down and it becomes something that's uh, pretty helpful along the way. Again, it's going to take some time, but again, as it, as it as more and more uh, carbon sequestration projects come into play, you're going to, you know, see some some benefits from that. And Ben, the rest of James' question had to do with Occidental as an investment. We know that Warren Buffett certainly likes the company. What's your view? Um, I, I think it's another one where uh, we got to let it digest. Uh, um, I believe it uh, has done some M&A um, and it'll need to digest that. But Buffett, as you said, st still loves the stock, still buying. Um, and it's one that uh, looks pretty well positioned uh, going ahead. And who's going to bet against Buffett, right? <laughs> Very true. At least on Barron's life. All right, Denton, we're almost at the end of the call, but I wanted to ask you, about some political issues in case no one has noticed we are in a presidential election year. What sort of impact could that have on energy regulation? Yeah, so again, as we all know, uh, gasoline prices are just always a hot button issue in the United States. I think there's three things that move the needle here. It's politics, religion, and gas prices. And what we've seen the last couple of years is the in this high gas price kind of environment that we were, especially in 2022, where the Biden administration and the EPA were a lot more lenient with issuing waivers on gasoline specifications. We saw it happen in uh, the fall of 2022 and the fall of 2023 in California, where they switched up to the winter grade gasoline earlier than, than normal. Now, granted, it wasn't months before, but it was a, you know, a week or so ahead of time. And that helped bring prices down significantly. The White House is very, very in tune to what is happening with gas prices. Um, we've seen some SPR refills because the price of oil has dropped down to, to levels that make it, you know, a, 
accommodating for them to to refill, obviously at a slower pace than some may want. But if oil prices do get do get out of control, I wouldn't be surprised to see more releases from the SPR just to keep the price of gasoline uh, at bay. Um, that being said, all you know, if there's nothing out of the ordinary that happens, I still think we're in in store for a lower price point this year than we were even last year. And Robab had a question: How would a possible Trump presidency impact the energy sector? You know, we're already producing at a at a you know all time high. I don't know if there's necessarily and, and Ben had mentioned it. Uh, you know, free cash flow at prices above seventy, uh, returning capital to investors. You know, uh, there's there's a forecast for more U.S. oil production increases, but it, it's not that much. And I don't know if a Trump presidency would say. All right, here we go. We're going to go up to 14 and 15 million barrels a day of oil. That would just flood the market with, with more U.S. oil. Uh, not to say that we're flooding the market now, but um, I, I think producers domestically are in a really comfortable spot with the amount of oil they're producing. So I'm not sure it would make a. It, obviously, you would see a little bit less regulation, a little bit looser regulation, make it a little bit easier. But for the most part, with production already at all time highs it's hard to see it to go significantly much higher from here. Got it. Thank you, Denton, for joining us today. We're going to head you back on the call. It's yeah, absolutely. We'd love it. Certainly a hot topic. And oh, yeah. we had tons of questions. I'm sorry we couldn't get to all of them. But as I said, you'll be back. And thank you, Ben, as always, for your insights, not only into energy, but everything else. Next week, Ben and I are going to turn the call over to our colleagues, Alex Ewell and Eric Savitz. They'll be talking about energy sector earnings, which will be coming into the market over the next couple of weeks. Excuse me, not energy, technology. I apologize for that. There'll be a lot of tech companies reporting. Alex and Eric will have the skinny on them and what to expect. Ben and I will be back in early February. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. Thanks for your great questions. Stay well, everyone. Have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.